welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, joined today by Glenn Packiam and Jason Jackson. And we want to talk about it, uh, a matter that uh, just a few weeks ago was a little bit explosive in the church, but it's I guess it's always been kind of explosive and contested. It just does have these moments here and there where it sort of flares up. And the specific occasion of this most recent flare-up was Pastor John MacArthur at a gathering of pastors, uh, I think out in California. Uh, they were there together celebrating 50 years of pulpit ministry for John, and towards the end of the time, uh, an interviewer asked Pastor MacArthur um, if he'd be willing to play a word association game, and Pastor MacArthur said yes, and the word that he gave, that the interviewer gave, was Beth Moore. Of course, we know that Beth uh, has been ministering in the church for a long time. She's one of the best preachers that we have. She's a gracious leader, a great thinker, so we give thanks to God for Beth Moore. Well, Pastor MacArthur, is a, um, he's a pretty rigid complementarian, doesn't believe that folks like Beth Moore should be preaching. So Beth Moore was thrown on the table, and the word association that Pastor MacArthur came up with was go home, which immediately ignited a firestorm, as well it should, and brought up all the issues again. So really, we want to have a conversation today kind of about two things tucked together. One is the nature of theological conversation, conversation in the church. And the second one is just talking a little bit about the sort of exegetical and theological side of the women in ministry question. So guys, I'm going to start kind of with the the nature of how we talk first. Tell me when you heard that little clip, what did that bring up in you? And how should we think, how should we be thinking about how we talk in the church, about God, about theology, about one another? What does this bring up for you? Well, kindness is a great starting point. <laughs> right. Um, I, I don't think we need to belittle the people that we disagree with. You yeah. know, and 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 maybe you know the viewpoint was well. Look, we've made the more sophisticated, detailed argument elsewhere, and here we're just having fun. Um, except that it really belittles someone who's trying to take the Bible seriously. And I think what is painful uh, for Beth and for so many other women who heard that clip is the more than subtle insinuation, if not outright accusation, that to have a view other than hyper-complementarianism is to have a low view of the Bible or to be ignorant of the Bible, and that's just not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my initial base response was just anger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, sort of processing through that, I think underneath that is just a sense of heartbreak. Yeah. So this is not how Christians should talk about one another or to one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not how we should voice our disagreements. This is not how we have productive sort of dialogue about those kinds of things related to exegesis and interpretation and application within yeah, the within yeah. the church. Uh, and then all the firestorm around it mm-hmm. was just evidence of that, of saying, uh, I'm not sure there was, uh, this was helpful. No, you know, no. Other, other than these court, the subsequent conversations of sort of clarifying yeah. mm-hmm, that yeah. we can actually hold a very, very high view of Scripture mm-hmm. and land in a very different place mm-hmm. of saying, no, we think there's a, a wide open space mm-hmm. for women in ministry in the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell me a bit about your theological journey, guys. Um, and Jason, you didn't grow up in the church. Glenn, you did, but kind of from a different corner of the church. So talk about how um, talk about how you kind of came to the place, uh, well, what, how you see uh, the question of women in ministry, and then maybe how you got to that pa- place. So talk about your end point, and then talk about some of the journey, how you got there. I mean, I'm at the end point that is not a million miles away from the starting point because I grew up in the charismatic tradition. It, yeah. And I think, I think the charismatic renewal and the charismatic movement 
has a as one of its foundational texts the acts quoting of Joel 2 that I will pour out my spirit on all people, all people. Yeah, yeah. and you're you know young men old men your sons and daughters shall prophesy so I grew up in a church that had women leading worship had women um, uh, speaking prophesying teaching not as many women preachers mm-hmm. admittedly and and maybe there is a there's still sort of a curve uh, or has been a curve in my own a journey of saying but what would what would prevent that I think where the journey has come from is, but what what do we do about some of these texts from Scripture? You know, the the First Timothy twos and the First Corinthians eleven, and yeah. so and 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 the journey for me has involved seeing a the whole kind of the big biblical narrative about men and women, mm. and secondly, uh, the specific texts in in the New Testament. I would say it probably was a bigger journey seeing uh, a, a mutualist view in marriage yeah. more than a, a mutualist view in ministry. Mm. And for me, I came to Christ in high school. My very first youth pastor was a woman. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know this was a question, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> she's my first pastor. And then the, the lead pastors of the church were a married couple, and they both preached. They mm. both taught. And so I saw that modeled from the very beginning. And so when I went to school at ORU, of course, again, connected my initial sort of church experiences mm-hmm. post my conversion were all connected to charismatic mm-hmm. churches. Mm-hmm. So I got to ORU and I saw a lot of that. Right, right. And then when I heard that there was a question, I was like, <laughs> "What? what's the question? Yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah. I hadn't read the New Testament at that point, so I didn't yeah. realize that all those texts <laughs> were there. But even when I started reading the text, you know, beginning in the Gospels, I'm seeing women all over the place. Read Acts, I see women all over the place. So then when I got to those troubling passages, I thought, well, there's got to be another explanation for this. It's just sort of my default, and I kind of skipped them and went on. My first mentor, like in terms of supervisor in pastoral ministry, when I became a youth pastor, my oversight was a woman. And so... Yeah, this yeah. is just normal it's for normal, me. But that's the charismatic thing for yeah. sure. Yeah. That yeah. sort of radical openness to like, if the Lord's given you something that's good and it's helpful, yeah, use that to the full extent. And it's funny. I mean, I resonate with both of you. Like, you come back around to it, and you realize that there are parts of Christendom where mm-hmm. this isn't yep. okay. Mm-hmm. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, but. and then went to a seminary that was incredibly inclusive yeah. of women yeah. in every area of ministry, and some of my best seminary pro- professors, yeah. Sandy Richter, Christine Pohl. Like, yeah, you've, 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 you've drastically shaped. Me. I learned the Bible because my mother was a teacher, a lecturer yeah. in our Bible college on the Old Testament. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I, I do think that it, it a lot of the our struggle with this conversation does matter about how we got into the conversation. Yeah. You know, and if if your entry point into the conversation is, but First Timothy two says totally. You know, yeah. So not, but to be to be sure, we should not enter conversations about what the Bible says through the lens of our experience. Like yeah. to say, well, I experienced this, therefore I've got to bend to the Bible. To, to match my experience. That's not what it means to sit under the authority of Scripture. But I think what we're trying to say here is actually the Bible has a whole lot of things to say about women in ministry and women operating in the mo- the gifts of the Spirit beyond the one or two passages that we hear all the time. And that the relationship between experience and interpretation of Scripture is not, we're not bending the Scripture to make it say what we want it to say, but social location and experience open our eyes to things that were always present in Scripture, is I think what I hear both of you saying. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. So talk about, you know, everybody talking, we, we know the passage in 1 Corinthians, and we'll get to that in a second, and in 1 Timothy. But let's talk in a little bit more depth for a second here. But when you look at the overall sweep of the, yeah. the scriptural story, and through the lens of your charismatic experience or otherwise, but what do you see there 
that 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 convinces you that there's a trajectory in scripture to saying women's voices not only can be in the church, but they should be, and they've always been there. Well, I think you have to go back to Genesis, and you have to look at creational design, and here, Jason, you can speak into the Hebrew of Ezer, Kenneth Go, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, and, and why don't you talk about that? Talk about that, yeah, that translation, so, I mean, the helper. Yeah, you've got the, the very first passage, obviously, is Genesis 1, yeah. male and female created in his image. So you have already, in this drastic sort of rebuttal of ancient Near Eastern civilization of saying, it's not just kings that are made in mm. God's image, but all humans, all humans yeah. male and female, not just male kings. So you've already got that seed of it right there. Then you get into this passage about a suitable helper, however that's <laughs> you know translated, which is a terrible translation. Mm. Yeah, it makes the word, it, yeah, the makes word it is, sound like a domestic assistant. Or yes, something, it's like know. oh, you know, like Adam needs a helper to yeah. do yeah, less important things, yeah. or he goes and does other things. But no, it's, it's not good for man to be alone. I, it's not good for Adam in this situation because he can't fulfill mm-hmm. the commands that have been placed on him, the commission mm-hmm. that's been placed on him can't fulfill it alone. And so God brings on uh, a helper. The Really, the word there is savior or deliver. Yeah. Deliver. Isn't or it the case? Strength. I've heard this, that that same word helper is used of God to it speak is. about God in the yeah. Old Testament. It's that majority, God is Israel's helper. Okay. So if, but, if, but, but, if this was a subordinate role, yes. the Old Testament writers in general did a bad job of communicating that to that us. That was not the intention of it no. all. It's a... And really, the emphasis is on the strength yeah. of that person. And then the next phrase is really unique. It's someone who's both like and opposite of him. Mm-hmm. So there is both difference, uh, but then there's also similarity. Mm-hmm. And there's a, really, you get a, a sense of a co-equal, mm-hmm. a co-ruler, mm-hmm. a co-person to be in this uh, arena of bringing about God's dominion in the world. This yes. mm-hmm. was the commission there. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense of subordination no. mm-hmm. in the or, or hierarchy. Or mm-hmm. hierarchy. So, so then you jump to the Gospels and you see what Jesus is doing to sh- to shatter kind of the power differentials of mm. men and women in the first century. Um, you know, speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, even the way the gospel writers record women as the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, women being followers of Jesus, all of this stuff. Um, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Totally. I mean, this is not just a parable or a story about uh, let's be more contemplative. Sure, but it's also about a woman can learn and yes. actually be a disciple. A disciple. It's yeah, the the same she's language. welcomed into the company yep. of disciples. It's the same language Acts used to describe Paul's relationship with Gamaliel. Wow. Sitting at the feet. Sitting at the feet. It's specifically the reason that Martha is so upset is that Mary has transgressed a social boundary. Uh, And Jesus has said, this is welcome. This is okay. Yeah. Not only this is welcome, but she's chosen well. Yeah. She's chosen the better thing to be a disciple of me, which means she's going to be teaching other disciples. Exactly. So this does not mean that she's taking in information devotionally and it's enriching to her, but she's actually being raised up and trained and commissioned to carry Mm. forward the teaching of the rabbi. Yes. Yes. yes, Exactly. Yeah. I always think about in the New Testament, I always think, about, I'm fascinated by Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah. 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 The ordering of that. Here are these like baller teachers in the church, and Priscilla is mentioned first, and she's yeah. categorically mentioned first. So it must I think have been four out she, of the six times. Okay, four out of six yeah. times. So she's apparently she yeah. had that level of prominence. Yes. And then all of like the many women that were quote unquote helpers to Paul in his ministry, they certainly were not putting out the milk and cookies no, for the small no, group. No, no. I mean, here we go. I've got Paul, I'm studying uh, for a message, Euodia yeah. and Syntyche. Yeah. He says, I'm pleading four. with them to agree with one another in the Lord. Well, this is not just a squabble between a couple of administrative no. assistants. No. These are leaders in the church 
that are having a gospel critical breakdown. Yep. And Paul is calling them back together for the good of the whole community. That yes. means that their role in the community was important. So I do think just, I think this is a long way of saying, there's this whole sweep of scripture yes. that's moving in this direction. Yes. And then what happens is we have a couple disputed texts that yeah. seem to be saying one thing quite clearly, we think, uh -huh. and we go, okay, well, the rest of that is. yeah. It's not saying what it seems to be saying. Yeah. yeah. So we we actually take a couple of passages that are troubling and then use them to dismiss a large number of other passages Larger. that say yep. the opposite rather well, than saying, wait a minute here, maybe there's another way of understanding these passages in light of Junia and Phoebe and just, Lydia yeah. and go on and on of apostles and deacons who are women. That's yeah. just what I was going to say. So let's, let's keep naming a few more female names. Lydia, whom the church in Philippi starts in her home, and she was most certainly not just laying out the milk and cookies, businesswoman that she was. And then you have Junia, who is well mm -hmm. known among the apostles, uh -huh. who John Chrysostom in what, the fourth century references and interprets that passage on Romans 16 mm -hmm. and says, oh, Junia must have been an outstanding apostle she was to an be mentioned by Paul. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Chrysostom was no fan of women just in general, you know, so it took a lot for him to praise this. But but what people don't get is is actually how Junia's name was then retranslated as Junius mm -hmm. in later manuscripts, so as to be buried alive, as Scott McKnight says. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until recently we said, wait a second, what what was the conspiracy against Junia, the female apostle? Yeah. So you have that, and then you have Phoebe being entrusted as a deacon to read Romans. Now, yeah. when we think of Timothy carrying Paul's letters or Epaphroditus or these others, we know that to carry the letter in the ancient world would have been to read it, interpret it, comment on it. Yes. So the person who carried, Ex taught, and, and you know, exposited Paul's most dense theological letter was a woman? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and then answer questions from the community that arise out of that? Yeah. I mean, we have a hard enough time with Romans. It sounds like preaching Yeah, to me. if that is an apostolic, I don't know what it is. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, so then let's get into some of these, um, some of these tougher texts here, and I'm going to just read the two of them and then uh, invite you guys to just make commentary where appropriate. So this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, Paul writes in verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak up in the church. So it's a pretty strong statement by Paul. Here's the other one from 1 Timothy, which echoes that in some ways, 1 Timothy 2.11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach her to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, and he grounds it in creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam wasn't the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, uh, but women will be saved through childbearing. Ouch, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So guys, as you've studied the text of scripture over the years and wrestled with these texts, um, just tell me where your thinking is at around those. How do you grapple with these in light of what we've talked about kind of on the positive side so far? Yeah, so I think we'll start with the Corinthians passage. I mean, clearly Corinthians is one side of a correspondence, right? We've mm -hmm. got two of Paul's letters. We don't have the Corinthian letters, whether or not Paul wrote another letter, you know, is up for, up for debate. So we've got uh, correspondence happening here. Within this context, we see other places where Paul is quoting the Corinthians back to them and then using that as a sort of way of, uh, refu of refuting what they're saying, correcting what they're saying. And elsewhere in uh, Corinthians, we see Paul giving instructions for when women prophesy, when mm -hmm. women pray in the church. So he's saying, hey, when women pray, when women prophesy in the church, here's here's what this should look like. And then later on says, I don't per permit women to speak in church. Like, well, wait a Which minute, is, he's, yeah. he's contradicting himself in the same letter, so there must be something else going on here. So I think in a lot of those passages in Corinthians, he's actually quoting 
the Corinthians back to them in order to then say, no, this is what you're practicing here is actually not what I teach. Uh, Same thing, actually, when we get over to 1 Timothy is we're writing in the context of what's happening in Ephesus. And Gary Hogue and other scholars have mm -hmm. been really clear to indicate that this passage in 1 Timothy is greatly influenced by what's happening in Ephesus because of the Artemis Isis cult that's happening there. And he's even quoting and using yeah. allusions to literature and teachings in that area and correcting specific yes. false teachings in yeah. this. Okay, but, take us into that because you've been reading this book by Lucy Pepia that's that's really helpful on this point. Yeah. So take Brilliant. us into what the, the Temple of Artemis and the cult of Artemis. How is that playing into what's going on in 1 Timothy? Well, the thing about the Artemis cult is a couple things. One, Paul specifically mentions braided hair. And the reason he does is because this is the way the, the priestesses at, in the cult of Artemis would dress. And so the women would, um, would dress like that deliberately to sort of mimic her. And then there was also the teaching in there that women were actually superior to men. So now we have... You, you might say an overcorrection or swinging the pendulum, pendulum the other way too far, but to say that men are less than. And so when even mm. when Paul cites the Genesis story, he's saying why, why it matters that a woman sinned and was deceived as a way of balancing out the scale a bit. And to say, rather than saying that women are ontologically superior to men, he's saying, no, actually, Genesis tells us something pretty incriminating about women. But he's not doing that in a vacuum, like just to say, look, we just need to know that women are less than men. He's saying, you, you can't say this. And then, mm -hmm. and then the whole line about... Um, uh, being saved in childbirth is the threat in the cult of Artemis was that if women did not adhere to this cult, when they got pregnant, they would die in childbirth. So in a sense, it's, a, it's maybe more accurate to say you will be safe You'll in be childbirth. Safe. Yeah. The Lord will protect you in childbirth. And using the specific language that's found in texts mm -hmm. from the ancient world about Artemis. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, you have a situation then where you have very wealthy, mm -hmm. very powerful, yep. very influential women in the Artemis cult yep. converting to Christianity, yep. but bringing with them into the church their practices of mimicking Artemis in their dress mm -hmm. at church, say, nope, stop that. Don't We're not going to do that here, and perpetuating an Artemis myth about creation That's right. and about the view of men, men and, and women. women. He's like, nope, we're not going to do that in the church either. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be afraid about mimicking her dress or perpetuating her teachings because you're going to be okay in childbirth because Jesus is with you. Yes. So, and so he's specifically addressing those things. So are you guys saying then that in 1 Timothy 2, that Paul is offering a prescription for a specific congregation dealing for a specific thing that maybe he would not apply to other churches, but he's speaking to a, a specific church. Is yes. that kind of how yes. you would say yeah. that? So he's this is this is this is pastor this is Pastor, pastor Paul yes. showing up and trying to correct something that's yeah. kind of wonky inside the church. And I'm not permitting these women. Yes, these I do women. not permit these women. Yeah, yeah, not all women. Not all women. I'm in this particular situation. I'm not permitting this behavior to continue. Mm. Instead, let them learn. Yeah. In Which, other words, let them learn the right, the right theology, yeah. and then yeah. They can teach. Which is huge because in Jewish settings, women were not allowed to come to the synagogue. So A, they were missing Jewish backstory, mm. and B, in Greek culture, they were not uh, being taught in the schools of philosophers. So so Paul's like saying that the church is the one place where actually women can get caught up on the real story and the story of God. This is all very fascinating and I think very helpful because I, I part of what this provokes in me 
is the thought of how prone we are to one size fits all prescription for all churches yeah. that it should always look like. And it seems like the Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul here, part of what he's doing is he's saying, you can move contextually mm -hmm. and locally and specifically and pastorally in your yep. settings. You don't, we can have the same kind of general convictions about things, but these are actual people and situations yeah. you're mm -hmm. dealing with. Yes. Well, and in the Corinthians thing, I wanted to jump back to that. Even in 1 Corinthians 11, the, the rhetorical devices begin when he starts talking about men and women and long hair. And Lucy does this brilliant thing of, of saying that Paul was leaving Corinth on his way to Jerusalem when he cut his hair in order for this festival or whatever. And so she does the math on, okay, if he was in Corinth, I think something like 18 months and how fast hair grows. Likely Paul had long hair in Corinth. Mm. And so he, in that same chapter in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's saying back to them, oh, you want to talk about the quote-unquote nature of things? So men shouldn't have long hair then, you know? Yeah. And, and it's sort of like this, the point that becomes obvious the moment you say it, because they're looking around at each other with their, you know, maybe shoulder-length hair or chin-length hair and saying, oh, yeah, I guess that argument does fall apart. So what we can't tell in the text is tone, obviously. Yeah. But we also, you know, in our conventions, we would put things in italics or yeah, in quotes yeah, yeah. and yeah. say, okay, this is your mantra, right? But he wouldn't have needed to do it anyway because they would have known, yeah, that is our saying. Yeah. And then he says, yeah, you're misreading Genesis. Mm. So, look, look, if we don't take that interpretation of it, what, what we basically are left with is either we are misreading Paul, something else is going on here, or Paul is flat out misreading Genesis. Totally. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> and instead, what Paul is doing is he's saying, you're misreading Genesis yeah. to the Corinthians, yeah. and this is what's really going oh, on. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Okay, guys, we got like a minute or two left. This has been so helpful. I'm sure that our listeners will have found it helpful too. Tell us a couple resources. Glenn, tell us, maybe give us the title of the Lucy Pepia book here, and any other resources you guys have found helpful on this over the years. This is a great, I mean, Lucy's book is 160 pages of gold because it's a single volume summary of so many of these arguments and uh, and readings of the text. It's called Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, Fresh Perspectives on Disputed Texts by Lucy Pepiat, P-E-P-P-I-A-T-T. -T. That's great, Jason. Yeah, and there's a, several other scholars that, yeah. uh, New Testament scholars, that are brilliant on this. So Scott McKnight uh, has a book on Junia. Junia is not alone. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, N.T. Wright has uh, weighed into this conversation. Mm -hmm. Ben Witherington, Craig Keener. I mean, these are top-flight, heavyweight New Testament scholars. Conservative scholars. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who take the Bible very, very seriously, mm -hmm. who are deeply committed to Jesus mm -hmm. and the church, mm -hmm. and who are saying there is no limitation to women in ministry in the church. You can find some of their work on Amazon. You can also go to um, seedbed.com. It's Asbury Seminary's um, uh, sort of resourcing platform, and they have something called Seven Minute Seminary, and you can find a couple of videos from some of these guys giving quick... Uh, sort of explanations, including Gary Hogue yes. on the Artemis cult, cult uh, in Ephesus. And as it relates to First Timothy, there's a video, seven minute little video on that from Gary uh, addressing those things on that platform. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Mm -hmm.